the worry with this particular music is, yes, there's a right, but that doesn't mean that what's done with it is right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so what I try to do is um, by presenting students with some of the messages in these lyrics and asking them really to think about it, to say, all right, this is your judgment call, right? As a citizen of a democracy, um, what do you think this contributes to our community? And do you want to be a part of it? From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Dr. Nancy S. Love is a professor in the Department of Government and Justice Studies at Appalachian. She joined the department in 2009 and is also a faculty affiliate of the university's interdisciplinary studies and women's studies programs. An award-winning teacher, she offers classes on political theory and political ideologies, and her teaching and research emphasize political theory, especially critical, democratic, and feminist theory. Dr. Love is the author of Trendy Fascism, White Power Music and the Future of Democracy, published by SUNY Press in 2016, as well as Musical Democracy, Understanding Dogmas and Dreams, a text, and Marx, Nietzsche, and Modernity. She is also the editor of Dogmas and Dreams, a reader in Modern Political Ideologies, 4th edition, and the co-editor of Studying Politics Today, Critical Approaches to Political Science, and Doing Democracy, Activist Art and Cultural Politics. She's also published numerous articles in prominent journals and contributed invited chapters to multiple edited volumes. She recently completed a six-year term as the co-editor of New Political Science, a journal of politics and culture. Dr. Love earned her bachelor's degree from Kenyon College and holds master's and PhD degrees from Cornell University. Dr. Nancy Love, welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So glad you're here. You are the first of several guests who are going to be joining us over the next few days to talk about speech and how we can balance the right to freedom of speech with the responsibilities that we as individuals have for the speech that we use. In your case, you explore language in music. Um, and I'm curious about this because you're a political scientist. So how and why did you end up studying music? Yeah, um, two reasons. First, I am an amateur musician, so music is one of my passions, and this was a chance to integrate that with my scholarly work. But more important in terms of my scholarly work, I'm a political theorist, and I started to notice how frequently people writing about politics used musical metaphors. I would argue that voice is even a musical metaphor, but perhaps more important, talking about democratic processes in terms of harmony or dissonance, concord or concert, amplifying the voice of the public, the public sphere being resonant and vibrant. And I thought, what if we take those metaphors seriously and start looking at how music and politics come together in places like campaign theme songs, protest music, anthems, those kinds of musical expression. What do you play? Sorry, just curious. I play piano and I studied voice for oh, years. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, so your latest book is called Trendy Fascism. Uh, so what is trendy fascism and how does music play into that? Sure. The trendy fascism part, I called it trendy because I'm talking about a phenomenon that is fashionable, up to date, but not just a fad. It's it's a longer term trend um, that has sort of significant implications for shaping culture. And then the fascism part, a lot of people have talked about the rise of the radical right in American and European politics as populism, you know, even authoritarian populism. 
But I use fascism because some of these groups have direct connections to neo-Nazi and also KKK groups, but they're not organized like classical fascism um, in Germany or in Italy under Hitler or Mussolini. Um, it's not top-down. It's not state-centered. It's much more grassroots. The term that's often used, they're cellular networks. People engage in swarm behavior. They appear on the streets, make trouble, um, and then disappear back into private spaces, often online. So your book, Trendy Fascism, explores this niche of white supremacy, particularly how contemporary white supremacists use popular music to teach hate and promote violence. Can you talk about some specific examples of when this has taken place? Yeah, I can, unfortunately. A couple of recent ones, 2012, Wade Michael Page, who was the Sikh temple shooter, played in multiple white power bands and was also radicalized online. He was frequenting white power websites, and there's often a connection between playing in the bands and listening to the music and reading the messages online. He was involved in a band, Blue-Eyed Devils, Definite Hate, and Apathy. Um, Another example, which is ongoing, Paul Craig Cobb, who tried to start an intentional white community. They called them Pioneer Little Europe communities. And this is part of the attempt to create a global network. But he tried to start one in Leith, North Dakota. And cultural politics is a big part of these communities. They specifically recruit artists and musicians. His community ultimately failed. He wound up being convicted and jailed for terroristic threats. And there was significant community activism opposing hate that made it impossible for him to recruit white supremacists to take over this town. But he hasn't stopped. I mean, he's now moved on to another community in Nebraska that he's trying to organize. But maybe my um, most interesting example, because it has a more positive outcome, George Birdie, who was one of the founders of Resistance Records and a lead singer for a band called Rehoa, Racial Holy War, got arrested for kicking an anti-racist activist who was attending one of his concerts. And jail time transformed him. He was forced to confront himself and his actions, and he decided to renounce his former racism and became a founding member of an organization that helps white supremacists who want to leave the movement um, find their way out, um, called Life After Hate. Wow. Yeah. You know, in some countries, and maybe this is just me noticing this, I feel like Governments pay quite a bit of attention to the role that music plays in mobilizing people to get involved in political causes. And I haven't noticed that as much in the U.S. It, is that just me? Do you think that's true? Or, um, and, and, you know, why do we or don't we do that? Yeah, um, well, I think First Amendment protections, right, for artistic expression. And then these groups in some cases claim religious expression as well. They're claiming to be founding a white racial religion. Um, I think that there's been a tendency to separate culture and politics and see culture as private and politics as public. And culture is sort of the realm of individual choice and taste and maybe judgment. But that fails to recognize the power that music has to mobilize people. I mean, historically, music played a major role 
in the civil rights movement. So that's probably the example that most people would think of. And songs like um, This Little Light of Mine, We Shall Overcome, you know, that are forever associated with mobilizing a movement. But the role that music plays, it's a really powerful mnemonic device. I think all of us have had the experience of learning counting songs or alphabet Mm -hmm. songs. And so these movements have used music to convey their message, but also hold their message in our memories, because music is stored in and it affects the most primitive parts of the brain. And so people will also remember the associations with the song, even after they may have forgotten the lyrics. So it isn't just speech set to music, right? right? right yeah. yeah, it's the sounds that have the effect as well. And that's not seen typically as political speech or as political message, but it is. It's almost like when you remember a smell from childhood, like, mm-hmm. you know, something cooking or something like that, and it brings something back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That whole set of associations. So how can we identify where the line is crossed over from this right to freedom of expression and the, the cultural side using an art form to really incite violence? Well, it, it's hard, right? And um, I'm not a attorney. I'm also not a legal scholar. So I need to be careful in, in terms of my expertise in that terrain. But there are studies that show that particular kinds of music, loud volumes, um, rapid rhythms, ascending notes, um, have effects on the brain-body connection. And by tapping into primitive parts of the brain, aggressive music can trigger aggressive thoughts, and those can be translated into aggressive action. So people get sort of amped up on the music and then do things that they might not otherwise do. And when that musical experience is a part of a group bond as well, and there's a term for that, muscular bonding, Mm -hmm. and it's used in the military and in churches, right? And it's something probably lots of people have experienced on dance floors, right? But that can translate into group violence in the streets. So I was uh, thinking about preparing for this podcast and um, remembering this experience I had when I was a kid. And this is not, you know, it it relates somewhat to what you're saying. It's different, but in terms of just paying attention to what's going on with music. So I think it was like 1982, and I'm listening to uh, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson at top volume, and I'm singing it at the top of my lungs, and my dad comes in my room, and he's like, why are you singing this song? These lyrics are terrible. And I was like, oh, dad, it's Michael Jackson. You know, like everybody loves Michael Jackson. They can't be terrible. And so he had this conversation with me that I totally did not want to have at age 11, um, you know, about the lyrics and what they mean and how we really need to be thinking about the lyrics of the song. And it still sticks with me to this day. I have to say I still love the song and I still like to, you know, groove a little bit to Michael Jackson. But that made me think about how he never really let me off the hook for that, right? And so even now, when I think of the song, I take that next step to think about the lyrics and what those lyrics really mean. And while I love the way the song sounds, I find myself saying to my kids, you know, I really do like the song, but I really don't like the lyrics, so let's think about those. So what do you think about how we can talk to young people about that? You know, I was a you know middle schooler, but if we're th- talking about, you know, teenagers, 20-somethings, like, what are the kinds of things that we can do 
that aren't, you know, PMRC type things where we just need to like say, you can't listen to this or you shouldn't listen to this, but to get people to really think critically about the music experiences that they're having. That's really important. Some of the former white power musicians who are now involved in Life After Hate have talked about how in listening to the music or singing along with the music, you're actually rehearsing hate. And to do that unconsciously is really problematic. So from my perspective, censorship isn't the answer. I mean, you mentioned PMRC, so then we're talking about some sort of warnings. Um, But this music is so readily available online now. As a result of an investigative report by the Southern Poverty Law Center, iTunes recently decided to remove a lot of its white supremacist-themed music. But it's still available elsewhere, easily available on Amazon. So what I argue for is people educating themselves about the messages that the music is spreading and deciding whether they want to be a part of that and participate in that. So my argument is that citizens in a democracy need to be aware of the cultural messages as well as the political issues because those cultural messages often undergird and support the political issues and um, the candidates who are espousing them. I think it's really interesting to think about um, how important freedom of expression is in a democratic society, because in order to have a democratic society, you really have to have all these viewpoints at the table, right? Yeah. Um, the other side of that is those viewpoints are not always going to agree. And so you have people at the table saying, you know, that is hurtful, that is wrong, you shouldn't say that. And other people at the table saying, I have every right to say that. And that is democracy, right? So when we don't do that, democracy is threatened. And yet, when we don't acknowledge there is oppression in language, then democracy itself is threatened. So, you know, this is this kind of squishy area, right, where critical thinking, in, in my mind, really is is really important. And and I also feel like this is also where higher education has to be there to challenge society to take that next step, to go beyond, you know, those sound bites and those, you know, quick little things that we look at and listen to in the media and obsess over and really dig deeper into thinking about that, you know, those go beyond the convenient narrative and really start talking about what's actually happening and what that means when we have those kinds of conversations. So that's super easy for me to say. I'm not sure it's so easy to do. So I know this happens every day in the classroom. I know what happens in your classroom. I know what happens in our colleagues' classrooms. Can you talk about how you're doing this in your work and how you're, you've seen your colleagues do this as well? Absolutely. I think you're making a a really important argument about the need to have everyone at the table, right? And to have all views expressed in order for a democracy, not just to function, but to thrive, right? Um, And the worry with this particular music is, yes, there's a right, but that doesn't mean that what's done with it is right. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so what I try to do is um, by presenting students with some of the messages in these lyrics and asking them really to think about it, to say, all right, this is your judgment call, right? As a citizen of a democracy, um, what do you think this contributes to our community? And do you want to be a part of it? 
Now, I define um, hate music very specifically. It's music that targets an historically oppressed group, whether through stigmas, stereotypes, and sometimes explicit calls for violence. And then it's music that is racist, misogynist, or ultra-nationalist. But I also say to the students, you know, some of these messages spill over into more popular music genres. And so we can't just compartmentalize this as fringe um, right, right. because it's it's a part of our culture. And to allow it to flourish in hidden spaces or to try to shut it down through censorship isn't the answer. What we need to do is work to become more aware of it and of its effects and then decide how we want to exercise our judgment as responsible citizens of a democratic community. So those are the conversations that I try to have. And I I show them examples and we discuss them. It sounds like having an established definition, working definition that you can use to, uh, I guess, as a jumping off point for the conversation Mm -hmm can be really helpful in that regard in terms of, you know, this is how we're defining this. So given the constraints of how we in this conversation are going to define this, let's then look at examples of where we're seeing it in other places. And it almost seems like creating that space allows you to move beyond other confines that might be kind of established already, you know, around that conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are genres that are associated with particular groups. You know, people have political associations with country music, right? With folk music, also with rock and roll. And so it opens up the possibility of talking about how musical genres as well as musical lyrics um, are presumed to communicate certain messages. But do they really? And um, what do we want to say and to share? Yeah. And I think that's also really important in terms of just kind of, I guess, getting back to that sort of convenient narrative piece, because I think it's really important to emphasize that that what you're saying is not this music is, you know, or this type of lyrics, these characteristics of hate music are everywhere. And so we should not listen to music anymore. <laughs> you know, that rather than we should just, you know, not listen to anything, which seems like would be sort of a natural, you know, conclusion people might jump to. Instead, you're saying, listen to everything. Just listen to it, you know, with um, with all of your mind and with, with all of these different, you know, um, conversations in mind. Yeah, and know the effects that it's having on you as a listener, as well as on others who are listening to it. And those effects, yes, they're on your mind, but... They're also in your emotions, right? Um, Because listening to angry music can make you angry. Mm -hmm. Um, Listening to sad music can make you sad. And then there are also effects on your body, Um, heart rate, blood flow. So music is a really powerful medium for mobilizing people for any number of activities. Yeah, when you were saying that, I was just thinking of my favorite um, songs I like to run to, so that that definitely (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Sure, yeah. Well, is there anything that I have not asked you about that you want to make sure that you cover in this conversation today? Well, I guess the only other thing that I would mention is that this is especially important now 
which is why I really appreciate us being able to have this conversation because our politics is increasingly fragmented and polarized and there is um, a rising tide of hate speech um, in the United States and I think it's important for us as citizens to be aware of that and not to run from it, to inform ourselves and to act in ways that we think express who we are as a people. And um, that's a much more diverse people than the messages of this white power music would suggest. I'm so glad you said that. Thank you so much, because I think that's exactly what we at Appalachian are trying so hard to figure out how to do you know we're we're kind of a mini city here you know about 21,000 people all kind of you know trying to figure out where we fit in you know life especially for the ones that are you know between the ages of 18 and 22 making some really significant decisions about kind of who they are and what they want to do Mm -hmm. next certainly as someone who's been on this campus for almost two decades I find myself in in a different place but having those same conversations you know how can I be a constructive part of this conversation which can be very difficult to have and when we have instances of you know any kind of speech that incites people to have intense conversations whether it's hate speech or you know because I think there's so many definitions of that that again that would be one of those things where we'd have to establish you know what we're talking about when we start to move on and have that conversation but but anytime there's any sort of you know injection into this population that gets people very passionate we need to understand as a community how we're going to respond to that passion and what we're going to do. And so, you know, we're figuring that out. And you being here is a really important part of figuring that out, tapping into our, our expertise that's right here on campus is so important to that. Well, thank you so much. So let me ask you one additional question. Um, and this relates to the use of music in particularly in political campaigns in the United States. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my colleagues had mentioned that he has noticed, in particular with the Trump campaign, um, attending a Trump rally and then afterwards seeing him in different settings, what appeared to be incredibly intentional use of music choice for those settings. Is this something that's new to us in America or just something we're noticing more now because we're paying more attention to those kinds of things? or? Yes and no. Um, It's new as, I think, a conscious strategy that micro-targets particular audiences, but music has been used in campaigns since the 1840s. It just used to be handing out song sheets at rallies, and now it's typically borrowing songs from popular performers that have the associations that the candidate wants for the audience at hand. Um, Where it really took off was in 2008 with um, former President Obama's campaign and Will I Am's Yes We Can, which I think will be forever associated with that campaign. Um, But Hillary Clinton has also crowdsourced um, and asked her constituents to choose songs for her. In this last campaign, I think Katy Perry's Roar was the most popular song for Clinton. But then there's also been pushback from artists who didn't want their songs 
borrowed or stolen um, by the candidates with whom they didn't necessarily associate their own political views. Bruce Springsteen, in particular, who's born in the USA, was um, borrowed by the Reagan campaign, really protested that. And Queen was um, suing Donald Trump for borrowing one of their songs. So uh, it's a complicated phenomenon, but it's increasingly prominent, and I think it's with us for the political future of campaigns. Well, Dr. Nancy Love, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today. I look forward to hearing you share your research and your expertise with our campus during the speech summit taking place at the end of March. And my hope is that by spending some time with us here today, we'll be able to extend these conversations not only throughout next week, but also um, further on into time and, and hopefully beyond our campus as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to come in and speak with me today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks, with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.